The scripture for today is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go... I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.
may be seated. So as I mentioned, last week in the opening sermon in our Back to School sermon series, Pastor Arthur spoke about the first weapon we have to fight back against all of the craziness, pain, and suffering we face in life. Rejoicing always in the Lord. And today we share with you Ruth and Naomi's story because it speaks to yet another method that we as Methodists, as Christians, as children of God, have in our tool belts to help handle the madness that is life, loving others. When we look at Ruth and Naomi's story, we clearly see two women in a world of hurt. Naomi finds herself without children to take care of her in her widowhood, and she is far away from her own homeland. She plans to return there quickly. Ruth, too, would probably be better off in these circumstances to return to her own family, as her sister-in-law Orpah had done. Instead, she refuses to do anything short of going with Naomi. Now, we shouldn't look down on Orpah. She did nothing wrong. She did what culture and customs dictated her to do. And we shouldn't read what Ruth did as a prescription for how all daughters-in-law are to behave towards their mothers-in-law. But do understand that we see in this story a beautiful portrait of one woman's fierce love and loyalty to another. But let's talk about Naomi. If we're really honest, she doesn't come across well in this first chapter of Ruth. If we take just a second to put ourselves in her sandals, though, we can see why she is the way she is. The beginning of today's text notes that Naomi and her husband and sons were Ephrathites, which was either another way of saying that the family was from Bethlehem, as Ephrathah was the ancient name for that city, or maybe it was the name of a family clan in that area of Bethlehem. But it seems odd to mention it at all because the text tells us where they were from. They were from Bethlehem. But maybe what makes it interesting is that the root word for that city's name means fruitful or fertile. And using a word like that in the midst of this story filled with hunger and death kind of drives home the way that Naomi's dreams had been dashed in the land of Moab. She had fled her home in the chosen land when it sank into famine and ran to a foreign place that was filled with people that the Israelites had a long history of hostility with. Her husband died, leaving her in a strange place with just her two sons. Her sons then marry two of those foreigners that they are living among, and they die themselves before a grandchild is born. You can imagine, after this stormy journey, Naomi is more than ready to beat a path back to Bethlehem and leave everything behind, including these two daughters-in-law. But Ruth, again, was having none of it. And even after Ruth 
expresses these very moving words, vowing not to leave Naomi's side and even to abandon her gods and to worship Naomi's God. By the way, this is one of only two times God is mentioned in this whole book. But even after Ruth's moving words of dedication and love, Naomi's reaction, her reaction was to just give Ruth the silent treatment the rest of the way home. Now, it could have been that Naomi was grateful for the company and overwhelmed by Ruth's love. It could have also been that she was not too keen on a Moabite following her home, especially one that reminded her of all of the pain and heartache she had found in that foreign land. I have to say that the conversation that Naomi has with her friends that greet her when she arrives in Bethlehem, most likely a conversation had right in front of Ruth, it kind of leans toward the second reason for Naomi being so silent. Naomi is bitter, and she renames herself Mara, which means bitter, so that no one will have any doubt of the fact. She is in need of a reversal of fortune. She is in need of recovery from all of the ways that life has beaten her down. She is in need of redemption. But do not forget, Ruth needs all of these very same things. Perhaps the only reason that there were not two women renaming themselves Mara that day was because one had chosen to deal with her brokenness by helping to heal the brokenness of another with an outpouring of steadfast love. Now, if you don't know the name Frederick Beekner already, I wanted to remedy that today by sharing some of his wonderful writing with you. And it's particularly fitting because Beekner, who was a writer, a preacher, a theologian, died this week at the age of 96. He had an incredible way with words. One writer who was eulogizing him this week described Beekner's faith as personal, unpretentious, and accessible. And all of his writing showed those things. So I wanted to share with you how Beekner describes the remaining story that you would find if you read the rest of the book of Ruth. Ruth had a spring in her step and a fascinating Moabite accent. And it wasn't long before she caught the eye of a prosperous farmer named Boaz. He was a little long in the tooth, but he still knew a pretty girl when he saw one. And before long, in a fatherly kind of way, he took her under his wing. He told the hired hands not to give her any trouble. He helped her in the fields. He had her over for a meal. And when she asked him one day in her disarming Moabite way why he was being so nice to her, he said he'd heard how good she'd been to Naomi, who happened to be a distant cousin of his. And as far as he was concerned, she deserved nothing but the best. Naomi was nobody's fool and saw which way the wind was blowing long before Ruth did. She was dead set on making Ruth, having Ruth make a good catch for herself. And since it was obvious she had already hooked old Boaz, whether she realized it or not, all she had to do was find the right way to reel him in. Naomi gave her instructions. 
As soon as Boaz had a good supper under his belt and had polished off a nightcap or two, he'd go back to the barn and hit the sack. Around midnight, she said, Ruth should slip out to the barn and hit the sack too. If Boaz's feet just happened to be uncovered somehow, and if she happened to be close enough to keep them warm, that probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world either. Ruth followed her mother-in-law's advice to the letter, and it worked like a charm. Boaz was so overwhelmed that she'd pay attention to an old crock like him when there were so many young bucks running around in tight-fitting jeans that he fell for her hook, line, and sinker. And after a few legal matters were taken care of, made her his lawful wedded wife. They had a son named Obed after a while, and Naomi came to take care of him and stayed on for the rest of his life, her life. Then in time, Obed had a son of his own named Jesse, and Jesse in turn had seven sons, the seventh of which was named David and ended up the greatest king Israel ever had with Ruth for his great-grandmother and Naomi for his grandfather's nurse, it was hardly a wonder. Ruth chose, in the midst of her pain, in a time of great vulnerability and anxiety, to love. And she loved not just with words, but with real, tangible action, leaving behind her family and her country and going into a strange land that was probably going to be unaccepting of her. And Ruth's love would prove to be transformative for her own well-being, for Naomi, and for the Israelite people whose story she became a part of. God's name, again, is mentioned only twice in Ruth, but his fingerprints are all over the story, just as they are all over ours when we let love in or maybe better, when we let love out. Naomi, who was once lost in a spiral of despair and bitterness, would come to realize that the God she felt abandoned by was still faithful once she was able to look up and into the eyes of her daughter-in-law and find God looking right back there. Naomi would trade the name bitter back for her own name, a name which meant pleasant, and for another honored name as well, because I like to imagine she was called Safta, the Hebrew word for grandmother, by baby Obed. Naomi had been lost, but Ruth's love found her and saved her. And love found and saved Ruth too. By loving the one who was in front of her, the one who was as broken as herself, Ruth took a step away from her own pain and back toward wholeness, and she brought Naomi with her. Sometimes life takes us away from fruitful, fertile places, just as it took Naomi and her family into Moab. Sometimes life takes us to seemingly endless depths of chaos and struggle, just as it did Naomi as she stood beside not one, not two, but three grave sites. But even in the deepest depths of despair, there is love. For love is not merely a warm, cozy feeling that evaporates when life is difficult. Love is not just an emotion that sells it far too short. 
Love is a transformative act of will, an act of God's will. I'll go back to Beekner one more time today to close. He says this about love. The first stage is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The middle stage is to believe that there are many kinds of love and that the Greeks had different words for them. The last stage is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The unabashed eros of lovers, the sympathetic philia of friends, agape giving itself away freely, no less for the murderer than for the victim. These are all varied manifestations of a single reality. To lose yourself in another's arms, or in another's company, or in suffering for all who suffer, including the ones who inflict suffering upon you, to lose yourself in such ways is to find yourself. It's what it's all about. It's what love is. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, when the storms of life swirl around us, it is so easy to get lost in our own pain and suffering that we forget all that is around us. We are so thankful that you have given us a amazing gift of love we are thankful for the people who show us love when we are in our darkest moments and we are thankful for the way loving others even in our hardest times is the first step towards healing Lord you have written powerful stories in all of our lives they are ways that we can minister to others Lord, help us to open our eyes and to look at those around us and see how to minister and to love and to give others hope. All of this we pray today in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.